Welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 11.5, the fifth episode in our series on Everglades and Biscayne National Parks. In this episode, I speak with Everglades National Park volunteer and naturalist Carmen Ferrero about the Everglades ecosystem and the animals and plants found in this rich and fragile environment. Before we get to the conversation, we would like to ask for your help to grow our audience by telling your friends, subscribing, and leaving a review. Also, we love creating each episode, but it takes significant time and effort. Please consider supporting our work through Patreon, which provides a way for listeners to support the show. Just go to our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and click on Support the Show. Thank you for listening. Now for this week's discussion on Everglades National Park. I'm here with Carmen Ferrero. Carmen is an avid naturalist who grew up in South Dade, Florida, and has been exploring the Everglades for more than 20 years. In 2012, she became a volunteer at Everglades National Park and since has been sharing her passion for the nature of South Florida with visitors to the park. Welcome, Carmen. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Danielle. So I'm so glad to have your perspective. Can you tell me, we were starting to talk offline about what you do for the Everglades. So can you describe your role as a volunteer a little bit? Sure. I'm a volunteer with Everglades. I've been a volunteer since 2012, so that'll make six years. The wonderful thing about what they call their VIPs or acting volunteers is that it really allows you the flexibility to do what you like to help out the park. From the beginning, I got involved in some habitat work and trail maintenance work. There was a need for my services in the visitor center. So I said, yeah, of course I'll do it. And really have enjoyed that process of, you know, meeting visitors to the park and sharing what they're able to do in the park and also being able to share with them why I love the park and what it means to me. So it's been a wonderful experience. Are you a volunteer for the National Park Service or for the a nonprofit partner? No, for the National Park Service, specifically Everglades National Park. Okay. And so when you're in the visitor center, are you doing a similar role to what rangers may do when visitors come and are asking questions and looking at the map? Yes, absolutely. We're basically the support to rangers. You know, we, we're trained, we're able to lead uh, programs if the opportunity is there. We're basically doing all the same functions, junior rangers, uh, letting them know what they can experience in the park, letting them know about any important critical information, whether it's that they're camping in the park or, they're, you know, there's an area that might be closed because there's some activity like a prescribed burn that took place. So basically, we're given the same training and information as rangers, obviously, for them, it's more of a job for us. It's a volunteer work. Well, thank you so much. As you know, we met you during the government shutdown, and we were so pleased and happy to run into you. You were just a wealth of information. Oh, thank you. So uh, we felt so lucky. We met you by Flamingo mm-hmm. Marina. You were with some other visitors. But when we first arrived and came to the 
co-visitor center to find it open. I was so surprised and just couldn't get over the the people inside, the volunteers like yourself who were helping and serving like rangers. So I was really grateful. It's wonderful. I think whether it's with those of us that are volunteers with Everglades National Park or those that filled in the gap during the shutdown with the, the park trust, I think we all love the Everglades so much that it's just something, you know, we want to share that and we want to see it protected. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of folks were concerned what's going to happen during the shutdown. We don't know. I mean, and it was just fantastic that they did that. You know, they stepped in. Those of us that couldn't be there, basically not permitted to be there, they were able to to fill in that gap for visitors, which is really important. So let's get into it. We wanted you know, get a real feel for and an understanding of the biodiversity of the park. It's such a rich place. It was established in 1947 to preserve the biological diversity and resources of the Everglades ecosystem. It's been designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The Everglades as a national park protects unparalleled landscape and provides important habitat for numerous rare and endangered species like the manatee and the American crocodile and the elusive Florida panther. So can you describe what makes up the park? There's so many distinct habitats that make up the park. Can you sort of draw a picture for us of what visitors should look for and expect to see when they come to the park? Which is wonderful that you say that because oftentimes, you know, a visitor's idea of the Everglades is just kind of like this vast sawgrass prairie with water <laughs> or or the concept of a swamp, which there is some of that to it, and that's obviously important, but there's so many other areas that are in the park that are unique and very special, like, you know, whether it be, you mentioned hardwood hammocks or the pinelands, even the mangrove areas, they're all a type of forest with unique soils and unique plants and vegetation. Different species are attracted to these places, and there really is so much to see and do in the Everglades. I usually tell people that I, I consider it to be, you know, a subtropical paradise. And I always think, you know, what makes it special is, you know, it's kind of like Aphrodite, right? The goddess of in the Greek mythology who rose from the sea, you know, the Everglades did as well. And so much of that history is visible and key in the park, like the limestone. Rain uh, is filtered through, through that vegetation and that limestone, and it's our aquifer, and it's the drinking water for Miami, but also, you know, sort of like so many rare plants, uh, species, and things that can be observed. The fact that it has both tropical and temperate species, and there's changes to the landscape, a lot of it depending on elevation or water. So, And it really does offer a lot for someone to see who is passionate about the environment. It is a very fragile place. What are the biggest threats? There are so many but what do we really need to protect the Everglades from? Yes, you're absolutely right. There's all kinds of things. And I think, you know, in terms of its fragility, you know, as a national park of its size and looking at the South Florida landscape, it came so close to being what Miami is today, right? When you look at the urban corridor, it basically is a national park that's just, it's bordered right up to this, you know, highly populated and developed areas. In my opinion, I think, you know, that some of those threats are, you know, easier to manage than others. But for me, the uncontrolled development that's encroaching areas outside the park is very troublesome. If you kind of look at the population of Miami-Dade, it has, you know, jumped from probably a little under a million in, in the 60s and 70s to pretty close to, you know, I, I think we stand at 
two million something now. So it's it's really grown at an accelerated pace. And the same thing with other counties that you know that sort of border the park. So I think for 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 the most part, you know, the agricultural issues that affect the Everglades, we know they're situated south of Lake Okeechobee. There's policies and there's research that's been done on on how to clean the water, how to better let the water flow, Everglades restoration. You know, with invasive species, you know, we we do have programs to monitor and manage those populations. But development really, in a broader context, has not really been looked at. There's really no no established uh, plan or long-term program to see how that is going to impact the Everglades because a lot of these, you know, development programs and plans are handled by local government. So I really worry as, you know, Florida continues to be developed, what that will mean for the Everglades. Even though the land is protected, federally protected, you know, it's still sort of um, vulnerable to what happens outside the Mm -hmm. park. Yeah, that makes a good transition to talking about wildlife. I had read that alligators and crocodiles are indicator animals for the health of the Everglades. Can you tell us how that works? You know, in order to maintain the healthy populations of alligators and crocodiles, they're very dependent, too, on on the right water levels, the right water quality, because this in part also creates a healthy environment for their prey or or their food and also is important to their nesting needs. So as you can observe with other top predators in other ecosystems, you know, they're kind of indicators as to the health of that ecosystem. You know, there's been studies that have shown kind of like, I think, I believe Yellowstone was an example of when, you know, the top predator, like the wolf was no longer there, how it transformed the ecosystem. So Mm -hmm. basically, you know, both alligators and, and crocodiles serve as those indicators that the ecosystem system is doing well. For alligators, for instance, if, you know, water levels are too high or too low, it, you know, as I mentioned before, it Im- impacts their ability to feed and sustain themselves. But they're also, you know, they, there's a term that they use, it's like ecological engineers, you know, um, alligators create trails through the sloughs. They create these pond-like mm-hmm. holes that we call alligator holes, that it's, it's habitat for so many species, everything from fish to turtle to wading birds, you know, coming to feed. And without this sort of hydrologic balance, the nutrition is inadequate. There's been research that has shown severely underweight alligators alligators and in a area no longer becomes sort of suitable for them to feed within the Everglades. And and interesting, because many species kind of keep returning to the same areas. Uh, That's not just just indicative of alligators. You know, they'll start moving through the canal systems and out to human populated areas, and then they're nuisance alligators and they're euthanized. For crocodiles, you know, there's similar stresses. There, a lot of their numbers decline because of habitat loss in Florida Bay, and a lot of that transpired because you know fresh water didn't flow through those estuaries the way that it should. So yeah, I mean, their range used to be all the way up to Lee County on the west coast, Palm Beach County on the east coast, but now it's kind of dwindled to really areas of Everglades National Park and you know certain parts of the Northern Keys. In recent years, we've seen a little bit more of an expansion of that because they've been turning out, <laughs> turning up in Coral Gables, you know, in, in suburban areas, you know, along the coastlines of Miami Beach, you, you know, even Broward County and, and in the Keys. So that shows that their numbers have increased and therefore their nesting has improved because, you know, of water and habitat. So that's kind of, I think, you know, what why they're considered important indicators of a healthy ecosystem. I see. So 
we learned a lot about the differences between crocodiles and alligators on our trip. We got to see both. We got to see babies of both, which was very exciting. That is exciting. (laughs) And so we talked quite a bit about them on our trip report in episode 11.1. But I wanted to see if you have any particularly interesting facts that you like to share with visitors. Uh, Visitors will always want to know what's the difference, you know, and of course, we, we explain to them where you're able to observe them and some physical characteristics that, that make them different. I kind of like to simplify it for visitors because I always tell them, you know, alligators have brown eyes and crocodiles have green eyes. <laughs> so, you know, oftentimes I'll share that with them because that, you know, that then they'll be like, oh, well, that's easy enough to spot. So, yeah, my daughter retains information amazingly well. And she actually shared on the podcast <laughs> <laughs> what what the differences were. That's so, wonderful. Um, for anyone who wants to hear that, you can uh, hear her talk about that in, a, in uh, that first episode in our series. And so visitors of course, are most likely to see plenty of alligators, uh, very likely to see crocodiles and manatees and a variety of wading birds. But what wildlife do you find that may be most overlooked by visitors that they should, that are they're likely to see while there? Well, yeah, I mean, oftentimes I'll tell them we, we just have, you know, sort of amazing, you know, smaller uh, varieties of, of wildlife that you can see, such as, you know, butterflies, our native tree snails. They're butterflies, if I can, you know, recollection serves me, I don't know the exact number, but it's pretty high up there, you know, close to 100 or so. A hundred different different species? species that you know that can be observed in the park. You know, depending on the season. But actually, two of these, which it's you know, for the endangered species list, people often identify that with these large, magnificent species of wildlife. But actually, the Everglades itself has species that are insect and such, such as butterflies and even plants that are endangered species. And that's usually unusual for a lot of classifications of endangered. So there's two butterflies that are very rare, which is the, and they're on the endangered species list, which is the Bartram scrub hair streak and the Florida leafwing. And both of those can be observed in areas of the pine rocklands in the Everglades in Long Pine Key. Yeah. And then the trees, the Florida tree snails, they're, they're magnificent. They're usually uh, seen in the hardwood ham or the Rockland hammocks, which are the smaller versions of that in in Long Pine Key. And the coloration really depends on the hammock. I've heard stories before the parks was established that they were really prized by collectors. And oftentimes if a collector found a particular color variation so that other collectors wouldn't have it, they would burn down the entire hammock, you know, just to preserve that. Obviously, you know, that practice no longer exists, but they're really magnificent to, you know, be walking and then all of a sudden just seeing this really colorful snail on a tree. So uh, those are definitely things that are overlooked by visitors, but really worthwhile to see. Oh, great. Ranger Allison Gant, she recommended bike riding on um, the Long Pine Trail. Yes. And so um, that might be nice. Take a bike ride, get off, take a walk and, you know, look and observe and maybe get lucky and see some of those butterflies. Yes. And, and actually for visitors, a little background on the, on the pine rocklands. Pine rocklands used to be a very common habitat. Like imagine, you know, northern Miami all the way south into the park along US-1 is what's called the Atlantic Coastal Ridge, which was kind of the, the high point of the limestone or, you know, where the elevation was. And, you know, pretty much water flooded to the east or west, but 
not on the ridge. So a lot of the development took place there. Pretty much most of the pine rocklands outside of the park have been completely lost to development. Only 1% remains. Long Pine Key is the largest preserved track of pine rockland. So it's a very, very delicate and imperiled ecosystem. And it is is the most biodiverse in the park. Okay. Well, we'll have to come back to see that because that is one area that we did not get to see. Yes. And it's got also, it also has a wonderful campground there. (laughs) Yeah. We camped at Flamingo Campground, but next time we'll camp over there. (laughs) (laughs) And you talked about hammock and you kept bringing up hammock. And I remember (laughs) hearing that when we were there too. So what is a hardwood hammock? What does that mean? A hardwood hammock is imagine the equivalent of a tropical rainforest in South Florida. What usually happens is that, you know, all the Everglades is wetlands and depending on the elevation that determines what kind of vegetation will grow. Because, you know, typically wetlands, yes, you know, the, the sawgrass, the sedges and all the other grasses, they're okay to grow in flooded plains, but some hardwoods need drier ground. So basically the hardwood hammocks are the highest elevation in the park and you get basically uh, different tropical hardwoods clustering in and sort of closing off the canopy because sun doesn't penetrate. But it's just wonderful. It's this lush green. Um, if you went to Mahogany Hammock or Gumbo Limbo Trail, you would be in a tropical hardwood hammock. Okay. For In terms of historical uses, many of the indigenous people in the Everglades used hardwood hammocks for their homes simply because, you know, they typically did not flood. And same goes for wildlife. It's a nice place to get out of the water. <laughs> Temperatures also in a hardwood hammock are a lot cooler. So in those blistering summer heat of South Florida, you know, it offers sort of a reprieve from that, the direct hot sun. So they're really beautiful places. There's not too much known about how they start developing, but a lot of times, you know, I like to think of it almost as you have this beautiful oak tree or mahogany tree in your yard and the roots start lifting. And therefore that sort of creates almost a little mound. And then from there, any other vegetation that comes starts to flourish there. They're really beautiful places. You can see everything from really beautiful lush ferns. Of course, we I mentioned the tropical hardwoods, but also many of our rare orchids can also be seen growing in tropical hardwood hammocks. I love orchids. <laughs> <laughs> I have that on my list to talk about. So I think I remember being on the Anhinga Trail and also in Shark Valley that there are hammocks in both of those places. Yes. And throughout the park, really, uh, even you know north of Shark Valley, and they call them tree islands because that's literally yes. what they look like from the sky. Right. And even when you're driving, all of a sudden you see this high group of trees together and it kind of does look like an island in the vast prairies of the Everglades. Right. It's all coming back to me now. (laughs) (laughs) And the alligator holes? Many of the alligator holes are constructed by them in, you know, the slough areas. And it's basically like waterways that come from the slough. In Anhinga, you sort of saw a little bit of what Taylor Slough was like. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a deeper channel where you can observe water flowing throughout the slough. Alligators, they'll divert the water. They'll create their little alligator holes. And especially in the dry season, that kind of offers a sanctuary for them because fish get trapped there and it's almost like their little restaurant. Other species come (laughs) to feed there too. So that's pretty common. Yeah. Okay. And that's why you see uh, all the animals and birds and things kind of gathering in those places. Definitely. uh, (laughs) It's like their little restaurant. Exactly. (laughs) It's all about the simplicity of life in nature. You get up, you need to find something to eat. You know, hopefully you're not something's dinner. (laughs) So it's, it's a pretty simple equation there. 
Mm-hmm. What's the most elusive animal in the park? Definitely the Florida panther, simply because their population is pretty small. Within Everglades National Park, there's a larger population of them in the Big Cypress area. It's what's called primary habitat. Mm-hmm. Folks always want to see that a panther, but it's even for those of us that have been in the Everglades for a long time, we see signs of a panther. We see scad, we see, you know, a panther track. You really have a hard chance of seeing them. But beyond just the panther, I mean, the panther is really, you know, the hardest to see. We do have Florida black bear, we do have bobcat, white-tailed deer. And, you know, even our snake species are, are not always something that can be observed by a visitor when they go to the park, but they're there. <laughs> and you may see signs of them, but, you know, they're not always easy to, to catch when you want to see them. So have you been fortunate to see any of those animals that you just mentioned? All except the panther within Everglades National Park. I did see a panther once uh, driving the Tamiami Trail in Big Cypress, just dash across the road. So that was as close as I came to seeing one. But I, I still yearn to see one inside of Everglades National Park. And they are wow. and they are there. <laughs> the interesting thing is that I've had wonderful visitors that, you know, it's their first time in the park and they've taken a photograph and they come to ask me if I can identify the species. And it's in an area that I've been to, you know, hundreds of times. And, you know, they were fortunate. So I always tell them that day, you know, make sure you stop on your way out at a gas station and play the lottery because you're one lucky person. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So what are your favorite parts of the park for wildlife viewing? And I suppose it depends on what you want to see, of course. For visitors, you know, and especially if you're only there for a very short period of time, maybe a couple hours, maybe a day, the Anhinga Trail is really going to give you the opportunity to see a lot. And also flamingo, what I consider maybe a concentration where you may see more than five species or so, including, you know, like the iconic species like the alligator, the crocodile, the manatee. Those are the two areas. But within the park, there's other areas. I like to spend a lot of time in Long Pine Key, in the Pine Rocklands, and also in the flamingo area, you know, searching for the things that I like to see, which is mostly raptors, uh, hawks and things like that. So, and there's wonderful information on the park website as to high probability you might see this or come into the visitor center and we'll certainly guide you because we track observations and reports from folks that have been seeing things, especially birds. So earlier talking about the butterflies, you said that, you know, collectors used to like the butterflies the plume trade was a big deal and really reduced the population of birds for a time before the Everglades became a park. Can you tell me just a little bit about that and how long did that last? How did the birds come back? Well, basically, plume hunting really was at its peak in like, you know, the late 1800s. It was mostly for the fashion industry and and women's hats. If you look at photographs from that time, they had these gorgeous hats with these elaborate feathers worked into them. It was quite a profitable trade. Sadly, most of the feathers that were taken were taken from nesting wading birds. And what would happen is the plume hunter would take the adult for the feathers because during nesting season, they exhibited these Not necessarily so much a change in color, but just the filaments of the feathers and stuff took on a shape and stuff that was very attractive to the plume hunters for the hat trade. So they would take the adult and abandon the chicks and therefore they would die. So some species, uh, the snowy egret being one, was almost, almost reached extinction because of this. They were one of the more coveted birds. The Federation of Women's Clubs, a lot of courageous people spoke out about the cruelty of this trade and probably like a lot 
lot of things that went out of fashion. <laughs> and and then with the passage of the Migratory mm-hmm. Bird Act, that really made it illegal to to hunt the birds and therefore, you know, kind of ended that practice. But it had pretty bad consequences. Like I said, it was basically the species they were targeting and at the time they were targeting them. They were not allowing them to procreate. So it was really detrimental to numbers of birds. Right. And so I know that the Everglades is really a bird sanctuary. It's just a place for people, bird watchers love coming here. What should uh, people hope to see if they're a bird enthusiast? And, um, you know, there's tons of egrets and herons and all different species of those. What are things that people would be lucky to see? Right. Well, I mean, if, definitely if you're into bird watching or you're a serious birder, certain times of years are probably the better time to come to the park, not just for the wading birds, but because we are on such an important migration route. It's called the Atlantic flyover, and it pretty much comes from Canada all the way through Florida down into nesting areas in Central and South America. So we do get, especially the fall migration, which kind of starts late September going into November, we do get many, many birds coming through the area that can be observed. Same thing happens with the spring migration. They're kind of heading back, coming up that same route. Very important, you know, if you wanted to think of it as a bird highway. You know, depending on the species you want to see, even if you just want to see birds in general and you're not a person that's looking for a life for bird, good areas to see, you know, the wading birds, you're going to kind of find them in the open, watery or wetland areas, uh, sort of like the Anhinga Trail, Peyoki, and, you know, areas of Flamingo. Uh, some of the smaller songbirds, migrating raptors and things like that, you're going to want to look for them in our hardwood hammocks, you know, more of the forest of the park, and definitely the pinelands of uh, Long Pine Keyans and so forth. Now, what's starting to happen in the park now that we look forward to every year is the swallowtail kites come into Florida during their nesting season. So that's always a really impressive bird. A lot of people want to see that. But we've had neotropicals like Cuban peewee and things that are vagrant species from the Caribbean occasionally come in and that causes a lot of excitement <laughs> among birders because it's, it's more of a rare sighting. I happen to, you know, just tell you the story. I spent a lot of time in Long Pine Key and especially when they do a prescribed burn because you get a lot of flora that hasn't surfaced in many years because there hasn't been a fire starting to sprout up. It's very hot. It's in the summer uh, and I'm in this area and I see a bird I don't recognize so I share it on Facebook page and all of a sudden all the birders get excited because it turned out to be a black-faced grass quit which is a Bahama species. <laughs> now who knows maybe these birds come all the time but you know in the summer you don't get as many visitors. You don't get as many folks in the same area and maybe they don't get spotted. So hurricanes, tropical systems sometimes bring a lot of good bird species into the park. But certainly you will never be disappointed. I was in the Flamingo Marina once and I'm so used to seeing osprey because I go to the park so often. And there was a pair right there in the area, I think where we were talking, there was a nest and there was a pair of osprey there with their young. And I remember talking to a visitor that came from Germany and just looking at their face and how marveled they were at this experience. And it kind of shamed me a little bit because I took it so for granted (laughs) because I've seen it so many times. And, you know, sometimes you fail to see what a special thing it is to just kind of see that cycle of nature and even in a species you see all the time so for a visitor it's always this marvelous experience so 
right camping at the Flamingo Campground. I would wake up every morning to watch the sunrise and there was a nest, an osprey nest. And so it was really fun to watch the osprey and watch them going back and feeding and I could see the little ones in there. I'm not as marveled because (laughs) where we are on Long Island, there's Uh tons of osprey, but I also don't take it for granted and I enjoy it because years and years ago Mm -hmm. when I was a kid, they were almost extinct. And so they've made such a comeback in just very recent years. So it's exciting and I look forward to, I miss them now. So it was fun to see them in January in Florida and, you know, in a few months, they'll be (laughs) back up here. They sure will. (laughs) So we have a a big nest uh, just down the street from us that I enjoy riding my bike and checking in on them every day. For me, the most exciting bird I saw, and maybe this is very common, you see a lot of them, but I had never seen it before, and it was so colorful, was the purple gallinule. Oh, yes. Yeah. Very, very coveted bird. Simply because, you know, it's the coloration and it's spectacular too to just kind of see it climbing over the spatter dock and occasionally feeding off of its flowers. So it is a beautiful bird. It's not a bird that we see all the time. I mean, there's times in the year where we don't see gallinules at all, but it's particularly nice in Anhinga because especially when you were visiting, you know, you you sometimes have them nesting during that time. So you might see some of the offspring as well. But yeah, beautiful, beautiful species. I did not get that lucky, but I really thought it was cool, especially looking at my photos later, how camouflaged they are. Their colors are so vibrant, but yet when I looked at them, when I was looking in person, but then looking at the pictures too, it was amazing to see how they really just blend with the colors around them. That was Mm -hmm. really neat. That's wonderful. Let's transition to talking about plants and more flora. Plants, orchids, wildflowers, so many cool orchids there. And I hope I don't mispronounce this word, bromeliads. Bromeliads. Yeah, Ah, I knew I was going to mess it up. Bromeliads. Bromeliads. So what's cool and special? And then, of course, there's all different grasses. And then there's cacti, which you would never think to see in Mm -hmm. such a wet place. Succulents, right? (laughs) There's an amazing diversity of plant species. In the Long Pine Key area only, there's close to 400 different species. So, I mean, even I that have been there so often, I still am uncovering things I've never seen before, especially like after a prescribed burn, after the fire. In terms of uniques, I consider them all pretty special because even sawgrass and the sedges and other grasses that you see in the wetlands, they're, they're amazing filtration systems. I mean, they clean the water. I don't know if they've ever been studied for their medicinal properties, but something that does such a good job at cleaning water <laughs> has to be pretty special and I value them immensely. I find that, you know, Long Pine Key, if you're in the Pine Rocklands, you know, you really only have the tall canopy is really just a slash pine, which is a native species to Florida. There's similar slash pine going into other parts of Florida and into Louisiana and stuff. But this particular species is unique to South Florida. And Pine Rocklands as an ecosystem is very, very rare, only found in South Florida, a small, similar kind of Pine Rockland in the Bahamas and in Cuba. But what really makes the flora of the Pinelands unique is the biodiversity and what we call the subcanopy, which is all of the other plants and wildflowers you mentioned and things like that. I'm always fascinated by the really tiny herbaceous plants like the deltoid spurge. It's an endangered species and it grows in very little soil. 
out of the rock. It can burn and regenerate. And a lot of times you don't even see it. And things like that I, I find are really unique. Obviously, you know, the really rare orchids are very much a spectacle to see. And many a times you're just walking and then all of a sudden you just see this amazing thing, either a ground orchid in an area or you'll see one up in one of the hardwoods. And we also have orchid species that are considered pretty rare and are basically monitored, uh, such as the cigar orchid. Very colorful, very beautiful, very coveted by orchid hunters at one time. And these you can find in places like, you mentioned the cypress dome areas, and also areas of the park that are really inaccessible. (laughs) And, you know, buttonwood hammocks, really no trail to get there to see it. I mean, if you're looking to see some orchids in the park, probably the butterfly orchid is a species you would see along the Anhinga Trail and the pond apples, which are sort of like those trees you saw coming out of the slough. Um, Many of them have the butterfly orchids, you know, they're epiphytes, so they're kind of attached to the trees. And they tend to bloom usually, you know, now late spring to summer. So that's one that can be easily observed by a visitor. And and sometimes along the main road, unexpectedly, you'll have a ground orchid that's called the fragrant ladies' tresses come up. But there really just is so much. And wildflower species, you know, now we have, for example, and, you know, probably the the, the sawgrass prairies that you saw when you visited there. Now, all of a sudden, all this color is bursting through with, you know, pine pink, which is also a ground orchid, and grass pink pinks and, you know, just so many different wildflowers booming. So really, you would never be never be disappointed in what you would see. Is there a best time of year for seeing orchids or wildflowers? Or there's just so many that at different times of year, there's just different varieties that that are blooming? Yeah, there's different times when the blooms kind of emerge. But pretty much, you know, Late spring, you know, into early summer, you can observe some good things. Uh, Some of the really, really uh, coveted ones come out early summer. And like I said, those are are pretty tough to get to unless you go with somebody that knows where to find them. They are that rare. Professional photographer or an amateur photographer? I remember you had a very big camera. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, actually, I, I have a DSLR. I do enjoy photographing wildlife. I'll tell you what I tell everybody. I don't really consider myself a photographer. I'm a naturalist who uses the camera as a learning and sharing tool. Okay. And and the reason I say that is because you know so many times uh, when I when I mention how I love the Everglades and how I spend time there and I volunteer, everybody's like, "Aren't you scared?" You know, there's there's sort of this concept of the Everglades being this very frightening place where there's only snakes and alligators, <laughs> dangers, you know, it's, a, you know, that whole concept of the dark, deep, dark swamp that nobody wants to go to. And I like to just show everyone through pictures, just what they can see there. And and I think, you know, even for visitors that come that take pictures in the park, it's such a memory in, of something that you observed and maybe may never see again in your lifetime, certain things you may never see unless you come back to that area. So it's really a place that's very photographed. And if you enjoy taking pictures from landscapes to wildlife, you will definitely enjoy doing so in Everglades National Park. Now, the one thing that I always tell people to do is the most rewarding photographs I take are basically when, let's say to a bird, you know, I I mentioned to you, I love hawks, when they're almost indifferent to my presence there. And I think that trying to minimize your, you know, how you impact them in their daily routine, just let them go about their natural business is really the great photographs you're going to get of wildlife. 
And landscapes, you know, there's so many things influence a landscape shot. Everybody likes, you know, sunsets, sunrises. Recently, we had this very foggy day and just everything looks different. So, but there's plenty of opportunities for that. You know, in the, in the summer, if you like photographing skies, you get these amazing thunderstorms roll through and capturing, you know, natural phenomenon is always a popular thing to do in photography. But I think, you know, like I said, it's, it's being able to take that, take that picture and being able to share it with others, teaching them what you know and what you love. And that's the important thing. I was uh, happy I stuck around. (laughs) You gave me a good tip with the manatees. Oh, okay. (laughs) You said, just wait a couple of minutes. They come up for air every few minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I I always tell folks that, you know, when I started taking pictures and really doing it all the time, I learned patience from birds. Because so often you, you want a particular shot and you, and you want to rush a, a photograph. But sometimes if you just, you know, like I said, just try to blend, <laughs> uh, things will transpire and unfold before you. That's really going to give you the perfect opportunity to capture that image. I did take some great pictures and I enjoyed looking at your, your website and seeing the beautiful pictures on it. So I have oh, thank more you. questions. Um, one thing I wanted to ask, and you may not have an answer for this, in, the, in recent weeks, this was national news, the the Brutus whale, which I talked about with mm-hmm. Allison Gant. But then following that, there were many manatees that show that were found dead around the Everglades. Has there have there been any findings, any discoveries as to why this is happening? Well, in terms of the whale, I believe that that's that that they're, they're, they're still tests and they're tr- still trying to determine the cause of death. We have had some, you know, uh, beach strandings before, uh, never, never this species of whale, but, you know, some of the pilot whales and things like that. And, and they're always being studied to try to determine what caused that. It may be related. It may not be. Uh, I think it's too early on to tell. Uh, in the case of the manatees and other marine life and fishes that have died in Florida this year, it's pretty much been linked to the red tide. Uh, folks that are not familiar with it, it's basically like a type of algae that's common in deeper waters. It tends to come close to the shoreline in the summer months. Uh, heat may be a leading cause of it. I don't know too much about the, the science of it. But for the most part, you know, we do have red tide episodes, just never one as severe or bad as we did this past year. Now, we also had, you know, the, the discharges that they do uh, from Lake Okeechobee. And for those who may not be familiar with it, you know, Lake Okeechobee, uh, there's a dike around Lake Okeechobee and they need to maintain a certain level of water, you know, so that it can't get too high because it might breach the dike. Uh, You have agricultural interests in the area and you also have communities that are around the lake. So basically uh, what they've done, you know, before the natural flow of the Everglades, this would, it was a floodplain, it would flow over the lake and it would flow into the Everglades, right? All of the canal systems design sort of divert the water. So what they did is they basically created two, you know, the two Two principal rivers, one goes to the east coast of Florida, one goes to the west coast, the St. Lucie and the Caloosahatchee. They sort of drain out and there's estuaries in those areas. So estuaries, just like Flamingo, you were able to be in Flamingo and see what an estuary is. You know, fresh water, you know, does flow. It kind of gradually flows in and there's no real apparent harm caused to 
to living things. But when you have these discharges that are so rapid, it's kind of like a shock. You know, like imagine take a freshwater fish and put it in salt water, take a saltwater fish from your aquarium and put it in fresh water. It's a drastic episode. And add to that the fact that, you know, a lot of the discharges had high levels of algae that comes from nutrient from agricultural runoff, but also because, you know, they have to spray canals and spray uh, to sort of diminish the congestion caused by aquatic plants. It's all, all part of, you know, water management. The discharges, they do not cause red tide, but it has been studied that red tide, if it gets close enough inshore where there are these nutrients in the water, you know, like the discharges, it can increase the effects of red tide. So all of that's kind of still being, you know, worked out on a, on a science level. But sadly, I mean, we had everything, you know, come up on the beaches from dead whale sharks, uh, dead sharks, dead dolphins, manatees, as you mentioned, even, you know, we even had some of our shorebirds like the terns, you know, just falling out of the sky, you know, dying and massive fish fish die-offs. So it, it really was a catastrophic year in these estuaries that are, you know, sort of north and east and west of the park, not directly in the park. But, you know, everything is kind of interconnected, right? Um, and although the Florida Bay wasn't experiencing, you know, the severe effects that these areas were, it, it could possibly be, you know, some of that red tide that, that caused the manatee deaths in, you know, within the park boundaries. Well, I, I think we need to end on something more uplifting. <laughs> sure. um, yes, please. Sorry. <laughs> uh, it, it's just that it's been in the news. No, it's good information. It's good information. The rosy Spoonbill they're such funny looking birds. In addition to the purple gallinule, I was also really excited to see those. And I know they're not very hard to see, especially if you go into Shark Valley in the drier season. Is there anything cool that you can tell me about that bird? Because I just thought they're so funny looking. We used to go to the National Zoo in DC all the time and see them there. And so to see them in their real habitat was pretty exciting for me. The most interesting thing, you know, other than the physical characteristics, it's kind of like their uh, feeding technique because they kind of do go from side to side. And for the most part, you figure, well, they're, they're probably almost filtering the water and, and whatever it is that they're catching. But on occasion, they'll do things like almost like a pelican does. They'll flip whatever they catch in their spoonbill and feed on that. Uh, they're very showy when they decide to, you know, kind of take off in flight and then land. They just kind of have this technique <laughs> of landing that's very captivating, uh, you know, wings spread close to the body, kind of, you know, slouched. But they're really special birds. I know a lot of folks come and they, they want to see a flamingo and a flamingo is much harder to encounter in the park, though they're there. And on occasion, if you're out paddling in Florida Bay, you might see one. But I, I always find that the spoonbills are pretty, pretty special and dear. You know, they, they nest in the park, you know, you get to see, you know, juveniles, you get to see adults and, and, and they're just, you know, like you said, like the gallinule, though, they're just this very sort of iconic bird that it never gets old. But yeah, they, they, uh, you know, there's visitors that want to see them sometimes. And, don't have the opportunity to, or they'll just see them fly over. So, you know, I was really glad you were able to see them yeah. up close. <laughs> my, my youngest, really, she could mm -hmm. not get over the fact that we did not see flamingos in Aww. by Flamingo Marina and Flamingo Campground and Flamingo Bay. And she was like, why is it called Flamingo? Where are the flamingos? <laughs> <laughs> they're there. They're just, you know. 
I mean, also too, their numbers have declined, you know, from, and, and recently there was studies done and they determined that there is indeed a Florida species of flamingo. We always just thought, ah, oh, this is, you know, a Caribbean, you know, a, spe a bird flying through and just happening to come across. But no, there are Florida flamingos and, you know, just, just, just harder to see. Uh, you don't get like the big flock of them like you do of, of, you know, spoonbills. Yeah. Well, so we always like to end our conversations with uh, asking you the question of, can you share a moment, a special moment, a special experience that you've had in Everglades National Park that really just gives you a moment of pause and reminds you this is a really special place? Is there any sort of special experience, special moment, anything that you can share with us? Oh, definitely. I mean, growing up in South Florida, the first time I went as a student to the Everglades, and this was way back, there's a lot more, you know, safety concerns and protocols now that weren't around when I was a youngster. We were in Shark Valley, we were doing a tram tour, the teacher and the ranger, they said, okay, well, now you're going to take off your shoes and you're going to wade into the water. And there was just this instant connection with touching the water, touching the, the earth, right? And just falling in love with this place. And I still feel that way. I still feel that it's my great love. I can't imagine if I, if I didn't have the Everglades in my backyard, I would consider that I had a, a deep void in my soul because often I, I'll go and I'll hike alone. And sometimes, you know, just in that morning, recently I was there shooting the night sky because we get these beautiful dark skies in Flamingo where you can see the Milky Way. And you know, just, just seeing that, you know, sort of daybreak and hearing all the birds, you know, uh, singing, and being there at nighttime and hearing all the frogs croaking and there's just something mystical to it as a place. And you get these drastic changes, right? Because you can get the wet season where it's hot and it's humid and it really feels like a watery desert. And then you can get the dry season where everything's parched and it's cooler. And, you know, you get these extremes and even in species and in, in vegetation. But there's just something about it that once you fall in love with the Everglades, there's just no other place like it on earth for you. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it started very young and I, I imagine it's going to continue even when I get very old. Wow. Well, that was really beautiful and a great point to end on. I look forward to getting back there and hopefully seeing you again. Thank you so much, Carmen Ferrero, naturalist and volunteer at Everglades National Park. And thank you so much for letting me participate in this podcast, Danielle. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. While there, consider clicking on support our show. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, write a review, give us a five-star rating, and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or send us your comments at everybodysnationalparks.com forward slash contact. We'd love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybodysnationalparks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.